You know what time it is No matter where you've been So let's do it again Listen up and let the sun shine And we've got soul training Time to practice what you preach And here's Daniel, Alan, and Joe. Daniel, we've we've got a bit of a problem here. Oh no! Um, the Three Musketeers is down to two today. As our listener can tell, I am not Alan. Alan has done, I think, every single intro for uh, somewhere around seventy episodes, and um, I guess. I guess you could call it a scheduling conflict. He had something come up that's very important last second. And uh, we're doing this just the dynamic duo today, unfortunately. It's just the two of us, man. Yeah, we're, we're going to miss him. He, um, uh, I don't know. It's not going to be the same, but we'll we'll do the best we can. Yeah, I don't know who I'm going to pick on for saying Reese Cup and things like that. <laughs> Um, so be on your toes, buddy. We'll see how <laughs> I got. I got okay. to direct this. Come up, I'll, I'll, I'll be ready. Yeah, I got to. I got to direct this energy towards somebody. And well, you're the only one here. Uh-oh. Um, but I guess since we don't have Alan with his little anecdotes to say uh, that entertain us all, I really, I really look forward to the intro every week. He has told us, and <laughs> I don't. Maybe this isn't such a big surprise. He doesn't usually have a clue where he's going to go with these intros. It's just we repress record, and uh, that that good stuff that he has pours out uh, right there well, he live. Be as surprised as we are, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> That's right. So anyhow, we'll hop into it today. Uh, we're going to take a, a topic that has caused mass confusion for ages, and I'm hoping that you can shed a little bit of light on some of this and uh, why why the masses have been wrong um, on this topic. So we're going to talk about pre-millennialism, and that is a mouthful. I got it out the first time. I'm not going to say it again. What do you be- – Daniel, walk us through a little of, first of all, what is that? And second of all, what are some of the implications – that 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 has because I know folks hold on to that uh, doctrine. Okay, um, <clears throat> yeah, it's it's a great question. There are basically four uh, different views about the millennium when it, it comes to historical theology. Uh, four main views. A lot of this is surrounded uh, text in Revelation, Revelation chapter twenty, verses one through six. And uh, the we'll, we'll read that in a minute, but where it really stems from is a, a difference of understanding, what I would say misunderstanding, about what Jesus means when he talks about his kingdom and what the nature of the kingdom is. Now, that was something that back, even his apostles struggled to understand what type of kingdom he was going to establish. They were looking for the Messiah figure to come and reestablish the earthly throne of David to um, to restore the kingdom of Israel. They wanted him to lead a rebellion against Rome and make Israel this political power that it once was, lead it to new heights of, of glory. 
um, that had not been seen since the days of David and Solomon. Yeah, that's, and, that's what they really wanted. And apparently Rome had got a little bit of whiff of this too, because that's one thing Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? As you know, he wasn't worried about an, uh, a spiritual kingdom. So he was worried about an uprising. Exactly. And, and that's the pretense that really they were using to try to solicit Pilate's interest in Jesus. Pilate wasn't going to crucify Jesus just because of religious differences, but they needed to try to convince him that he was a a rebel leader. Um, but I'm glad you mentioned Pilate because in Jesus's exchange with Pilate in John uh, chapter 18, he specifically, when, when Pilate asked him, are you a king? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. John chapter 18, verse 36. So Jesus specifically says, my kingdom is not of this world. That's not what it was intended to be. His is a spiritual kingdom. It's not a political kingdom. And so this is is a key reason why um I, I don't think the doctrine of premillennialism is valid, but we've we've digressed a little bit. I started out telling you about the four different views of the millennium, this this thousand year reign. Sorry, that's one of my strong points is taking bunny trails. Sorry about that. I don't have <laughs> well, Alan I mean, to reel me in, so uh, we need we need to circle back around uh, to that topic anyway. Um, but to to clue the listener in, in case they aren't familiar with premillennialism. Um, the, the four basic views, the first one is amillennialism, which a, a means, you know, not without. The, the thousand-year reigns in this view is a, a symbolic reference to the present age when Christ is currently reigning over the church, which is his kingdom, and that there will be one resurrection of all the dead at the end of, of time. Uh, followed by the judgment and the beginning of our eternal existence, either in heaven or in hell. Um, most members of the churches of Christ today are going to take this uh, belief and, and think that's the, the correct uh, understanding of the Bible's teachings about the, the thousand years. There's also a doctrine called post-millennialism. Now, post-millennialism used to be much more popular than it is today. There's not uh, that many groups that still believe it. But it basically says that Christ will return to the earth after an extended period of time, not necessarily a literal 1,000 years, but an extended period of time of peace and prosperity that was brought about by the preaching of the gospel. And advocates of that view are going to believe that the millennium is going to begin once the world has been fully evangelized, that's going to kick in the, the millennium. Then you've got uh, premillennialism. There's historical premillennialism, which says Christ is going to reign over the earth for a literal 1,000-year period following his second coming. The saints are going to be resurrected at the beginning of the millennium, the non-believers at the end of the millennium. So they think there's these two resurrections separated by a 1,000 years and after that thousand years comes the judgment. Then it comes dispensational premillennialism. And this is the one that has become very popular in the, the world today. When you see these, um, these movies and books like the, the Left Behind series and, and all this kind of stuff, that, that really centers around the idea of dispensational premillennialism. And it's almost universally 
believed among evangelicals, but it's not uh, been historically a a widely held belief. It's it's a fairly modern belief, even though it's widely held uh, today. But it's a much more complicated version of the premillennial theory, and um, it, it holds at least two resurrections and three judgments. It's very very uh, complicated and. There are considerable differences in how different premillennialists uh, view it. So, you know, we'll, we'll kind of take on some broad stri- uh, broad strokes at it. But there's still one particular um, denomination or another is going to have a different wrinkle, a different approach at it. But uh, we'll we'll look at kind of the the rough uh, side of it. But anyway, the idea is that Christ will come in the first phase of his return to the earth is what will be called uh, the rapture. And at this time, the righteous dead uh, will be raised, the living saints will be changed, and both will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord. Uh, So that's the the first resurrection and and, and the rapture. Maybe you've seen the bumper stickers that say, in case of rapture, this car will be uh, driverless or or something like that. So that's, that's what that's talking about. And now, honestly, there's nothing terribly wrong with the word rapture if you're just talking about being called up to meet Jesus. But in in modern context, it's usually associated with this idea that that I would uh, disagree with. Um, now, as we progress into this, as an aside, I want to tell the, the listener, I, I don't view this as a matter of salvation. Um, I think you on the on the realm of the, the the scheme of, of things that we can agree about on the Bible and disagree about um, I think that the premillennial doctrines are wrong but I don't think that they are necessarily soul condemningly wrong does that make sense yeah um yeah I got you there's there's things that are salvation issues things that are not baptism being one of those salvation issues. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think I think you can misunderstand some things without it being a, a salvation issue. Um, but where I, ultimately- where I've had problems is mm-hmm. some. Well, we've talked about before. There are different uh, denominations, I guess, different thoughts out there where folks seem to cling to the obscure and, uh, frankly speaking, the weird. Um, yeah. And then they completely bypass the things that make sense just to hang out in Revelation. Uh, where mm-hmm. And so this premillennial—see, I told you I would mess it up. <laughs> I was going to say it once and not say Premillennialism, this thought comes mainly from Revelation, Revelation 20, right? Mm-hmm. Right. I guess what I don't understand— is why, of all the imagery that Revelation holds, why suddenly this is something literal to folks. It's it's obviously very uh, metaphorical and filled mm-hmm. with these fantastic images. And then we get here to the thousand-year reign, and that that is a literal thing. Jesus, They believe Jesus will come back to this earth, reign for a thousand years. And it it goes so far to affect national politics. Mm-hmm. Um, f- that's one reason. Now, 
you're older than I am by like 10 minutes. But maybe you understand back in the 60s, 70s, there was a real big push to, or was it the 40s, to push Israel into being a nation again? That way Jesus would have a place to come back to rule over? Am I right or am I crazy on that? Uh, no, I, I think you're historically right. Now, I'm going to be speaking a little bit outside of my... Sure, we're talking geopolitics. but Right, but I, I do think that you're correct, that part of the reason America has historically been interested in Israel having Israel is because of this idea of, of premillennialism. Um, now, I'm all for being allied with Israel, sure. but it has nothing to do with with this. As if the um, Lord needs our military might, you know. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, it, exactly. Sorry, I, I took another aside. Keep going, Daniel. You're doing great. Sure. Okay, so after this, this rapture, then comes the marriage feast of the Lamb, during which there's a great tribulation on earth. I have different ideas about how long the tribulation is. But after the wedding, Christ and his bride, the church, will return to earth, where Christ will set up his kingdom. According to this theory, he will sit on David's throne in Jerusalem for a literal 1,000 years. Jews will be converted, and Old Testament worship will be restored. There will be peace and harmony on the earth for a 1,000 years. And at the end of that time, Satan will be loosed for a short time to make a last effort to uh, destroy the Lord's people. And that will be followed by the resurrection of the wicked uh, and, and the final judgment. So that's kind of the, the rough sketch of, of what premillennialism is. And you're right, it's based on heavily symbolic passages in Revelation. Uh, let, let's, let's read Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, and let the listener, as I read through this, uh, what do you actually hear in this text? Now, some of it is easy to misunderstand. Some of it's hard to deal with, and I, I grant that. But there's so much about this premillennial theory that, just really isn't uh, in there. But before I get into that, I will point out that one of the cool things about Revelation, we were talking about the, the sim symbolism, and there are some very different ways to approach Revelation. Um, but all of the mainstream ways that I know to approach Revelation, even though some of them see it being unfolded throughout history, some of them see it entirely uh, kind of theoretical, philosophical, not really rooted in in historical events. Some of it, some people view it as entirely in the future. Regardless of all the very different ways people look at Revelation, most everybody ends up at the same point, and that is the point of the book is God wins. God wins, and we want to be on His side. And whether we think that that's going to involve this thousand-year reign, or we think that uh, it's it's not, whether, whatever, we understand in the end, God wins. He's already won. Uh, and that's that's a message of hope as we move forward into the, the world and, and move forward into, into the future, that the world may get crazy sometimes, but at the end of it all, God's going to win. Uh, so we can have peace and comfort in that idea. All right, so the, the text there in question says, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it, 
and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for, for a short time. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of um, the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Behold, our blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. You know, commentator Ray Summers wrote that if verses 4, 5, and 6 of Revelation, had, uh, Revelation 20 had been omitted, no one would have ever dreamed about a literal thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth and him setting up this uh, temporal throne in, in Jerusalem and inaugurating a millennial reign as an earthly monarch. Uh, yet whole systems of eschatology, theology, and philosophy of history have been constructed on the precarious basis of these highly symbolic verses. And I think he's right in what he, what he says about that. Um, of course, the Bible only has to say something once for it to be true, but these really highly symbolic verses are not a very steady ground to base a, a major tenet of, of doctrine. It's worth noting what's not taught in these verses. It doesn't say anything about the second coming of Christ. It doesn't say anything about a bodily resurrection of the dead. It doesn't say anything about the reign of Christ on earth or the literal throne of David, Jerusalem or Palestine. None of that's in there. Um, the conversion of the Jews, the church on earth. If those doctrines don't come, uh, come from Revelation 20 and they don't come from anywhere else in the Bible, then that begs the question, where do they come from? And so it's, um, it's important to understand what this passage actually uh, teaches. Um, and we can, we can get into that some uh, as well. But going into it, we want to understand that what we said already, that Jesus' kingdom is already uh, not of this world. You know, going back to, um, if he wanted to establish an earthly kingdom, Back after he fed the 5,000, and they were coming, he perceived, uh, the Bible says in John chapter 6, verse 15, that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king. Now, if somebody wanted to be king, when they're coming to try to force him to be king, seems like a pretty opportune time to, to take that, that throne. But he departed at that time and got away from him to, to be alone. Um. And again, in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. So if this kingdom is some future reality that's coming at the end of time rather than a present reality, then there's some very, very old people that are hiding out amongst us uh, somewhere. Um does that make sense to you? Yeah, <clears throat> this is a very it's a very difficult uh, piece of scripture here. Uh, not just do we have Jesus uh, reigning for a thousand years, uh-huh. 
But explain this to me. I know we're not doing a study on Revelation. I guess that's probably what we should do next. Uh, we haven't done a Revelation episode. We should do one. Have we not done one at all? I don't. I don't think so. Nope. Okay. I don't think so. Yeah, we should do that. Um, about how to read Revelation. We'll brainstorm later. Mm-hmm. But okay. w- explain this to me, Daniel. What's the purpose of Satan being bound and then letting him go? I that doesn't make any sense to me. All right, that, that's a that's a great question. Um, so again, the symbolism here in this very passage, Satan is not he's, he's depicted as a dragon. Satan's not literally a dragon, and people debate if he's a fallen angel or something like that. Um, Satan is a spiritual being. He's not literally bound with a great chain. He's not literally shut up in a in a bottomless pit. And so we shouldn't expect that the time of his binding to necessarily be a literal uh, thousand years either. Numbers throughout the book of Revelation are very symbolic in, in their nature. Um, so you know, Satan's binding does not um, prohibit him from all activity. You know, he's, he's been described in various passages like John 16, 11 as, as the ruler of this world and saying there he's already been judged, meaning that he's already condemned. The, the sentence is sealed with Christ's right. triumph over death. That's right. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses uh, 14 and 15, says that since the, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil and might deliver those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. So Satan has already been defeated. He was defeated with the death, burial, and resurrection of, of Jesus. Um, yet his his power now is is limited. You know, God says that he's, in First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. So Satan, even though he is powerful, he's now bound, he's limited. He can't overpower us to the point where we cannot resist him. And there are limitations. It's sort of like... Um, uh, the idea of a, a dog on a chain. You know, if you get close enough to that chained up dog, then yeah, the dog can bite you. You're right. But if you stay out of his reach, he's he is bound. He has these these limitations. Um, okay. Now this idea of him being, um, you know, released at at the end, I don't entirely know really what what that's about or or what that means. Well, if you keep uh, reading. He's caught again and thrown in the lake of fire a few verses later. And, exactly. And so it, it's confusing why um, the good guys hold the keys, why they would let him out just to recapture um, later. I, it's That's confusing. But I do have another question I want you to clear up right fast. You uh-huh. and I know Revelation is f- full of figurative speech. Um. Folks that hold to this premillennialist concept, they they believe this is literal. How how do you show them that this that Revelation as a whole is not literal? Because a lot of times they, the folks that I've talked with and the folks that I've read, they believe all of it's literal. And so, um, 
Where do you start with on that? Maybe this is for our Revelation episode, but we'll revisit that on that one. Yeah, that can be a, a longer conversation, but kind of in short, it, it part of it is understanding the nature of apocalyptic literature uh, in, in general. Um, apocalyptic literature was, thrived under Judaism, and it, it especially thrived in situations where there were periods of, of persecution, where you had this, this power that you wanted to be able to write messages coded messages that you could circulate and distribute within the group of the initiated that would understand. But if these things were intercepted, then they, they would look like nonsense and the, the powers that be wouldn't be able to decipher what was really being uh, discussed here. And the book of Revelation, we believe to be written under a period of, of significant Roman persecution and a lot, the way I understand the book of Revelation is a whole lot of it is about the downfall of the Roman Empire that is going to be um, referenced heavily uh, throughout the book. And so it makes sense that, you know, you're, you're writing in code here and it reads very much like something that's written in code. That somebody with uh, an understanding of the Old Testament is very rooted in Old Testament uh, symbology. Uh, they're going to understand those things. Whereas somebody that is, um, you know, a Roman official picking this up, he's going to scratch his head and have no idea what's going on here. And, and a lot of people today interpret it about the same way as those Roman officials that are scratching their heads and don't have any idea what, what's really being talked about. And we also know that while the Bible is divinely inspired and it speaks to us and we can learn from it, we can learn salvation, how to get to heaven, these these individual books weren't necessarily written to Joe Pritchard, Daniel Gaines, and Alan Jones. I mean, look at like Ezra and Nehemiah, right? We can learn from those, but those were not originally addressed to us, right? And so when John's writing this, we aren't the original audience. I imagine that original audience, like you're saying, um, it wouldn't be as confusing to them as it was to us. Or as it could be. Yeah, I think you're right. Mm -hmm. And with any text like this, there's a a primary audience and a secondary audience. And we're always the secondary audience. You're right. Um, And these books are written with us in mind, but to somebody else uh, more immediately. And some people in their interpretation of Revelation See, here, here's the, the balance. It needs to be relevant to the primary audience and the secondary audience. Yeah. And these premillennial views make it entirely irrelevant to the primary audience. What, what comfort is, is being brought to these Christians as they face life and death persecution by talking about some type of, of rain that's going to be thousands of years from now? That, that's just that's not very comforting. If, if my family is is uh, about to be thrown into the Colosseum to face lions, you know, you're right. Okay, well, we've only got just a few short minutes. I can't. I, I still feel it's like you feel naked without the, the third person here. You know, it's uncomfortable to me. Um, I miss I miss Big Al. Uh, I do. I, I do too. Yeah. Um, Wish is there. Maybe you can like record just something later from him and, and dub it in <laughs> somewhere um, there. somewhere i've got a recording of alan singing the soul training theme uh maybe yeah, i can slide that in here, here. <laughs> 
maybe maybe something from his Coach O impression. That's always yeah. Um, see our Facebook page, folks, if uh, if you want to if you want to know more about that. Oh, speaking of Facebook page, please go on there, give us a good review. Also, uh, if you have a beef with it, you don't like the program, uh, just email me and we can talk about that. You don't have to do a review uh, for that. But if you do enjoy it, please review us um, anywhere you listen to your podcast, on our Facebook page, give us the five-star ratings, tell your friends, whatever. We're still, you know, we're in year three. This is season three. I can't, can't believe it, but we're season three. And uh, I feel like we're still growing. We're, st- we're, we're, st- we're still working hard at it. And so if you enjoy this, please share with those that you think would benefit from this program. We would really appreciate it. Daniel, we've got like two minutes. Is there anything uh, anything pressing we have to get out in two minutes? Anything else you got to burn in a hole in your, in your pocket? One thing I really want to urge people to do as, as they do study these things is to – Never interpret um, difficult text in a way that contradicts plain text. Where the Bible teaches something in a plain, easy-to-understand way, uh, don't let uh, some convoluted understanding of of a symbolic passage, a passage that's hard to understand, the Bible's not going to contradict itself. Uh, God's not going to contradict himself. So if something is easy to understand somewhere else, and you're understanding a difficult passage in a way that contradicts it, your understanding of the difficult passage needs to be adjusted. I think that's good advice to end on. Um, We can go ahead. Alan should be rejoining us next time in a couple of weeks, and we'll look forward to that. Uh, But other than that, Daniel, go ahead and hit the outro, and I'll get the music started in post, and uh, we'll, we'll call it an episode, just the two of us. Okay, sounds good. Um, Thank you, dear listener, for letting us be a part of uh, your spiritual journey today. We are honored by that. We want to thank the elders at the South Green Street Church for Christ for making soul training possible. Um, And hopefully Big Al will be back with us again next time, and we'll be back to uh, to normal and not be like a a tripod with with a missing leg. (laughs) Hopefully we don't fall for it. That's a a um, bipod. That's right. That's right. Is that even a thing? I, I, I've seen, I've seen the ones that have just one leg, but I can't imagine it would work very well. Yeah, I don't think so. All right. Well, until next time, keep soul training. Got soul training. Time to practice what you preach. Yes, we do. We've got soul training. To learn more, you can email us at soultrainingpodcast at gmail.com or you can write to us P.O. Box 503 Glasgow, Kentucky 42142 That's Soul Training